This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. While you're here, please make sure to like and subscribe. If you're listening to this on podcast, please make sure to leave a review as this allows my content to get in front of more people. And thank you for that. My name is Judy Cho, and I'm board certified in holistic nutrition. And I have a private practice where we focus on root cause healing, and it often starts with the carnivore cures meat only elimination diet. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Allie Miller. She is a registered dietitian, and I've been a fan for a very long time. I found her when I first was keto and She just speaks science so articulately and beautifully, and it just breaks it down in such a way to understand how stress, anxiety, and all these things with the HPA axis, which we get into a lot more of, how it affects our overall mood and how we can heal that area naturally. Allie Miller is an integrative dietitian, host of the Naturally Nourished podcast, author of the Anti Anxiety Diet, as well as the Anti Anxiety Cookbook. She's also the founder of the Naturally Nourished Supplements, where she focuses on a lot of formulas that are safe, proven, and effective to support anxiety and the HPA access. I'm a big fan of getting to root cause. And one thing I love about Ali Miller is that she focuses on why there's stress, why there's inflammation. It's not just about reduce your stressors, but it's also can it be related to your gut? Is it because of nutritional? Deficiencies. She uses food as medicine, but the right foods and the right medicines at certain instances. Not medicines, but herbals. But if you listen to the conversation, she really deep dives into why we experience anxiety and stress and how we can support that rather than just popping the easy medicinal pill that we are recommended from standard care. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Ali. Thank you so much for joining me today.、Um, it was a pleasure to see you and finally meet you in person at KetoCon. And so I wanted people that may not have heard of you to meet you. And so if you can introduce yourself, you know, why you became a registered dietitian to the people that are listening and watching. Sure. Good to see you, Judy. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited for a fun conversation for sure. So, my name is Allie Miller, and I went to a naturopathic college of medicine with the intention of becoming a naturopathic doctor. But 
many of my mentors, a couple of them, as I started to learn about functional integrative medicine, uh, I had a course that Dr. Jeff Bland had come and visited, and that really opened my mind to the whole world of orthomolecular or high-dose concentrated nutrients as a healing modality and the influence on our biochemistry. And I started to kind of get some guidance that if I was an RD, I could kind of branch both banks of the river, if you will, and kind of work, I don't know, not not in disguise, if you will, but I guess a little bit more openly accepted by the allopathic mainstream medical world. Uh, and so I switched gears and got licensed as a registered dietitian, and that allows me to work with gastroenterologists, endocrinologists, as well as, you know, just general practitioners working with metabolic syndrome. And although I use food as medicine as the foundation of my approach with every condition, I am also taking things a lot further in, in the world of functional medicine. So I get that opportunity to work with targeted supplements, uh, do more diagnostic labs. So whether I'm testing stool in the world of inflammatory bowel, or if I'm looking at salivary assessments for hormones and cortisol, I really get to get amazing clinical outcomes and that acceptance from more of that allopathic world, which is super cool. The the GI docs are always the first ones on board, but with my work with the anti-anxiety diet, I have many referrals and onboard psychiatrists now, and um, it's it's really cool to kind of see them open their eyes to the influence of inflammation and targeted nutrients and elimination diets and healing the gut. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I never thought about how if you're an RD, you're, you're, the whole allopathic world will be more accepting than if for some people here in ND. So that totally makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about the anxiety. I know you're an anxiety expert um, or the anti-anxiety. So if you could talk a little <laughs> bit about the HPA axis, why it's so important in terms of hormones, adrenal stress. Sure. So the HPA axis is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal feedback, hypothalamus and pituitary in the brain. The adrenals sit above the kidneys. And this is the system that regulates the body, whether it is in a parasympathetic, which is often dumbed down to rest and digest mode, or a sympathetic fight or flight mode. And so it's influencing our autonomic nervous system regulation. What is super significant about this feedback pathway is that I really emphasize the influence in this parasympathetic space as more regulatory function for the body than just thinking of that rest digest. So when we think of the parasympathetic space, this is where we will have optimal sexual hormone. So for instance, in the hypothalamus, we're actually going to be making our human growth hormone. In the pituitary is where we regulate our FSH and LH, so our follicular stimulating hormone and our luteal hormone. So this is going to have an influence on women's menstrual cycles and fertility. We know that the pituitary also makes things like oxy oxytocin, which is a neuropeptide that has that bliss anti-anxiety or anxiolytic response. The pituitary also makes TSH, our thyroid stimulating hormone. And so of these glands, when the hypothalamus is focusing on a survival state and it's stimulating the pituitary to just make ACTH to turn on those adrenal glands, it's then suppressing all of that regulatory function. So we can see issues with things like body temperature regulation. We can see issues with sleep cycles and energy cascades throughout the day. So more chronic fatigue syndrome or insomnia. We can see issues with hypothyroidism and even drivers of autoimmune thyroid conditions like Hashimoto's. 
we can see in that, that in turn will suppress metabolic function, of course. So then we're in the world of metabolic syndrome and obesity, et cetera. And then of course, again, if we're focusing on that fight or flight survival mode, all of the sexual hormone balance gets suppressed in favoritism of that survival. So, you know, it's, it's not as simple as this kind of light switch of on off of a stress or relaxed state. And often it's that scenario of the frog in the simmering pot of water, if you will, where when I'm asking my patients, I do a 90 minute intake. And when I'm asking them about stress, most in their intake forms will say moderate. Some will say hi, uh, you know, but once I get through my questions of stress, like, do you grind your teeth at night? Oh yeah, I wear a bite guard. Uh, <laughs> what is your sleep patterns like? Oh, I'm waking at 3 a.m. every night. Okay, what is, <laughs> do you have neuromuscular tension? Oh yeah, every time I get a massage, you know, the therapist says that I'm just super locked up or I just had frozen shoulder. Um, and uh, How's your GI? And so when I work through the physiological impacts of stress, Often I find this to be an overlooked, undermanaged area in the human body. And that's really the premise of my work with the anti-anxiety diet. I, I take this position that stress is the Achilles heel to wellness. So whether I'm working with leaky gut and I have them on glutamine and bone broth and a very strategic diet, if their HPA axis is off, they're going to literally get holes drilled in their gut from secretory IgA. I mean, it's a biomarker that really works at the enterocytes or gut cells and creates that leaky gut pathology. Um, and so everyone has their own start point. And that's the most fun of being a functional medicine practitioner, determining that trigger or antecedent. But my hypothesis is that stress is an Achilles heel in almost everyone. <laughs> and, you know, we're seeing, of course, this exacerbated with pandemic. And then in terms of the stress, I mean, we see people that will focus on my issue is, or my root cause issue is my thyroid or other people are like, it's my sex hormones because I'm a menorrheic. How does that all happen? Is it, do you think there's a determinant of if the ACTH is focusing more on producing cortisol, but is it that that person, is there a specific person that the thyroid will start getting imbalanced versus the person that's the sex hormone or is it kind of all over? I mean, I think that there's definitely genetic predisposition or tendency, right? And familial history. So we know those that are more prone towards risk of said area becoming dysfunctional. Um, you know, we see this, for instance, with like PCOS. Uh, we see this, of course, with Hashimoto's. So I, I do believe for sure there's some genetic influence of a predisposition. But generally speaking, when the body is all kind of focused on the adrenals because the body wants to survive, the way I explain it with the world of like amenorrhea, right, is that, well, first off, your body went anovulatory and then it completely stopped cycling. Right. And it's because literally the most easy way to explain it is your body doesn't feel safe to carry a child. Your, your body knows better and it knows it doesn't know if there's a tiger or a cheetah or whatever's behind it, but it knows that it has to survive. And this is not a time that your body is prioritizing reproductive health. And, you know, we really think of the menstrual cycle as a sixth cardinal sign of wellness. That's a very big metric. Of course, that's why I advocate against use of birth control in most cases, because that band-aids, that feedback mechanism that many of us need to check ourselves and, and realize, oh, I'm in that simmering pot again. Even a woman just skipping ovulation one month or having a shorter cycle where they have breakthrough bleeding at maybe day 23 or 24, instead of making it that full 28 day cycle would be an indicator of an imbalance in that HPA access. And then in terms of stress, I mean, we hear, right, we have to all reduce stress and it becomes almost 
common knowledge and we get it and okay, okay, we'll reduce our stress. But I mean, how bad is it? I know we just talked a little bit about the HPA, but what, what do we need to do to really reduce that stress so that we have better health with lifestyle, diet, supplements, give me the right answer. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're welcome to share about all of those facets and how it affects stress in general. So, I mean, my, my approach with, again, I, I think more people identify with stress than the word anxiety. Um, and I would broaden the term anxiety of also just mismanaged stress or being in an overdrive mode, uh, just for, uh, I guess, more listeners to, to connect the dots. Um, so whether we're diagnostically dealing with anxiety and panic attack, or whether we just feel in an overdrive mode where we're dealing with ADHD and we don't, we don't have good concentration and focus. And again, we're having some of those symptoms like the hormone imbalance or the insomnia, et cetera. Um, for all those people, I, I use a six R approach when I'm trying to harness this area. And I do find that each individual is going to have a different entry point of a more important focus. So the first thing I look to do when I'm looking at stress, and this is kind of more functional than, than like lifestyle practices and tips, but in a functional way, what we have to acknowledge is that physiologically, the body can be stressed beyond emotional stress. So a gut infection can drive chronic stress response in the body, for instance, inflammation can drive chronic stress. And so when I look at this approach, I look at reducing inflammation. I look at repairing gut integrity. I look at resetting the microbiome. And then I look at restoring micronutrients. And then the fourth and fifth are looking at rebounding the adrenals. So again, if the adrenals are constantly stealing from that HPA access, we have to support that pillar so we can create more parasympathetic balance. And then my final R of approach is rebalancing our neurotransmitters. So with each individual, I may be starting at a more focused entry point. For instance, if someone is dealing with bloating and distension or dyspepsia or belching or irregular stools, we're probably going to dig more into that third R of resetting the microbiome. And what's super remarkable there is that when the gut has an infection, so it could be Klebsiella pneumoniae, it could be Candida albicans, it could be a parasite, um, it could be Giardia or Salmonella, a known foodborne illness. Um, when we're looking at a gut infection, the enteric nervous system, which is what we call the second brain of the body or the brain in the gut, the enteric nervous system actually puts out epinephrine, um, which is in layman's terms, adrenaline, a fight or flight signal because the biome is not correct or it's imbalanced. And so the gut microbiome of dysbiosis is going to produce more adrenaline. And so often we'll see individuals dealing with chronic stress, anxiety, and they're like, my life is good. I have a, a solid marriage. You know, my job is good. I don't know what could be making me have these panic attacks randomly. And it could be primary in that individual as a gut infection. What's important to note also is if they have sterility, even uh, maybe they had a history of an antibiotic or they're drinking tap water with too high levels of chlorine and they're not using fermented foods or getting good probiotic exposure, then they're also suppressed in the landing gear for their fight or flight mode. And so the gut manufactures, you know, 80 plus percent of our serotonin. 
Also in a symbiotic balanced gut, we're going to make more GABA, which is a direct landing gear for that fight or flight mode. And so you have that, that juxtaposition of chicken and egg of making more adrenaline with less landing gear for that fight or flight response. And that just creates this, this chicken and egg, unless you go in and plow, reset the microbiome and then re-inoculate with good. So that's just kind of one scenario of one entry point. Um, you know, it could be a mother that just breastfed might need to start with that restoring micronutrients because they might be super low in calcium, which we see actual chronic anxiety from calcium deficiency. We could see that in the state of uh, nutrient deficiency of the B vitamin family or zinc. And so it's kind of a very individualized approach, but multifactorial as far as those foundational drivers. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because when I work with some of my clients, if they don't control their stress, then even if they're taking certain nutrients or eating the most nutrient dense foods, they're not digesting and absorbing it well because their guts in disarray from all that stress, maybe they're not producing enough stomach acid. So in that sense, would you work on the gut first or would you try to, I mean, they're not even absorbing a lot of their nutrients. So it's that it's like you said, the chicken and the egg, how do you support somebody like that? And that's a good point. When we're in a sympathetic mode, we only make about a quarter of the amount of digestive enzyme that we produce when we would be in a parasympathetic space. And also, yes, our hydrochloric acid levels are going to be suppressed. So we're both low in activating our digestive enzymes and breaking down the food particles. um, And that's going to influence the bioavailability of the nutrients. So, you know, I would focus on more nutrient dense foods. So we always look to animal based foods for the most bioavailable form, especially when we're talking about anxiety based nutrients, which again, B vitamin concentration, zinc, Um, This is where we'd really push for ideally incorporation of even organs. Um, But I would have the individuals also using a digestive enzyme prior to meals um, and maybe even doing things that enhance bile flow. Um, So they might be doing like live lemon mixed with olive oil as a shooter in the morning to get things stimulated um, or an apple cider vinegar shooter in the morning. Um, Those are great things to consider. And then watching the dilution of enzymes if already suppressed at mealtime. So I try to keep drinking more focused between meals versus at mealtime. So in the carnivore community, a lot of people will say, I'm eating the most nutrient dense foods, I don't need a supplement. And I would love to for you to, because I think you can articulate this so well that some people when we're stressed, we're like, we just said, we're not producing enough digestive enzymes, or um, when the HPA axis is very imbalanced, and we are we live such stressful lives, all of our resources are going to produce more of that adrenal ACTH because everything inside our bodies require raw materials to be created. Right. So can we talk a little bit about how, why does our bodies even prioritize cortisol versus our thyroid and our hormone? Because a lot of people will say my core issue is thyroid when it's really maybe just the excess. Right. So if we can talk a little bit about that. 
Sure. So first on the nutrients, one of the biggest ones that we'd want to be mindful of is vitamin C and vitamin C plays a huge role with cortisol metabolism of all of the tissues in the body. It's highest stored in the adrenal glands. Um, and so there's definitely a vitamin C depletion that we see clinically in individuals that run with HPA axis dysfunction, whether they are in an over, um, production of cortisol or a suppressed burned out following that ex excitatory chronic mode. Uh, and that would be, of course, a very limited nutrient in the world of a strict carnivore. So for someone that has clinically assessed their cortisol values, you know, um, some individuals are, are absolutely anyone that has an imbalanced cortisol level, I'm going to absolutely recommend vitamin C supplementation, regardless of what their diet looks like, because more is needed. And so that idea of, you know, supplementation in general, what you're doing when I have a patient asking me, for instance, right now <laughs> I'm opening a market. Um, so I'm opening a third business. Um, my house is in its completion of being built. We'll be moving in December and I have eight garden beds that we just built ourselves and have uh, a truckload of soil being delivered as we go. In my market, I'm rendering lard, I'm receiving pasture-raised meats and just doing all this new stuff aside from my functional place. So this is a time of uber, uber, uber <laughs> demands and the need for support tools to maintain a harness on that HPA access and also a harness on the stallion of the brain so that I can still tell myself even at this hyper execution level that I'm safe. And that's really important. And it takes a kind of multifactorial approach of, of course, breathing and movement, and working with mantra and prayer or gratitude and, and some, you know, harness in the world of more of a psycho-spiritual component, but supplementation is utmost necessary. And so for that type of a time, we're looking at layering in things like adaptogens. Adaptogens have really withstood the test of time as far as history of use in Ayurvedic, traditional Chinese medicine, and of course, in Native American practices and such. And adaptogens, as they sound, help your body to adapt to stress demand without hyper sending up that HPA access. So it's going to allow for stress resilience and stress tolerance. And these are compounds like rhodiola, ashwagandha, cordyceps, to name a few. We also would consider nervines, um, which is a different classification of herbs for an individual that's more fiery wiry. Maybe their nervous system feels hot. Maybe they're dealing with that racing in the brain and the anticipatory stress or that waking in the middle of the night. For these individuals, we would look more at calming herbs. So we're looking at compounds like valerian, or we're looking at chamomile. I also would strategize amino acids. So L-theanine would be a number one um, go-to there. And this is another one that would be, you know, all these are limited in the carnivore diet, just as a note. Um, so L-theanine is a compound that's going to be highest in green tea. And um, this has been shown in many research studies to upregulate alpha brainwave activity. And we see alpha brainwave activity in creative thought, in meditation. And so it's this alert awareness without agitation and anxiety. Um, and then there are amino acids that we would see more in protein foods like phosphatidylserine, and that can over time help to regulate cortisol output. But when someone is under this high stress demand, when people say, well, how long do I have to take your calm and clear, which is that formula I was referencing with all those compounds. I say, well, how long are you running on fumes? <laughs> it's like, right. It's like, 
tell me when your toddler is not a toddler anymore and we'll talk. <laughs> tell me when, you know, so it really is, is dependent on our stress demands. If someone's living in a luxury world of their feet up on the beach or they're in an actual survival of more of a hunter gatherer and they're working with the seasons and their circadian rhythm is spot on, they're not bombarded by EMF and industrialized toxins. Sure, you probably don't need supplementation, but I think the argument of, you know, I'm eating this pure paleolithic diet. Sure, that's a great nutrient dense foundation, but we're not living in paleolithic times would be my argument. No, I love that. So when I first joined the nutrition space, I mean, I healed a lot of my depression and a lot of things with the carnivore diet and I wasn't eating meat for 12 years. So I think a lot of the amino acids was needed and the fats, but as yeah. I worked with individual clients, I learned very quickly that without these digestive supports, hydrochloric acid, and then even some of these adaptogens, I think that using plants from a medicinal perspective is highly beneficial. And, and I recommend a lot of that to a lot of my clients that are super stressed, even vitamin C from whole food form products, such as camu camu, sure. I think those work really well. So I'm not super Girl, cherry. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, I think a lot of those are very, very beneficial and I see it. So a lot of my clients, like you said, that maybe are so wired at the end of the night, maybe they try adaptogens throughout the day and see how it helps. So I'm fully on the same page with you. And I see the benefits. Um, I also have clients because they don't have proper gut function even though they're eating two pounds of meat, their markers for B vitamins are low. I see yeah. micronutrient yeah. tests and you would never think that the reality is unless you work with individuals, you'll never see these things come to fruition. And then you just believe that, yeah, with a nutrient dense diet and it's true, but considering all factors that we live in, you're right. I mean, it's, I've seen so much benefit with supplementation and I know a lot of people in the carnivore space hate that because they want to believe that the diet alone is perfect but we yeah. live in such a stress state and we saw it right. in the pandemic. Yes, absolutely. I love that. And I, I think that the slippery slope we get into in any world, definitely in the world of functional medicine, definitely in the keto space, definitely in the paleo or carnivore space is, is this myopic tunnel vision. And I think that it's, it's everyone needs to start with tunnel vision to get results. And then we have to get to that N equals one individualized approach to really understand what works for us versus this starting point protocol. And, you know, when we talk about like particular peptides or compounds that support an anxiety, an anxiolytic or anxiety reducing space. Absolutely. One of my number one go-tos is, are you eating enough red meat and are you getting enough fat? Absolutely bar none. And I have a long list on my belt of recovering vegans that I, I gratefully slay and put in there. And people will ask me, can I do your anti-anxiety diet without animal products? And I say, no, unfortunately, can I do it without plants? Yes, but maybe not for life, you know, maybe for a season. Um, and so, you know, when I'm looking at compounds that are really supportive to ground, amandonide is the, the number one kind of go-to, the anandamide that we see highest in red meat. This is what, I'm not sure if you're listening, if you guys have talked about that one on the podcast, but that's what like creates the, in my mind, the cartoon cat that salivates on the ribeye. <laughs> anandamide is a bliss um, compound. It's actually, that word is Sanskrit and it's makeup. And um, it works with our endocannabinoid system. It actually was the first recognized compound before THC and CBD in our endocannabinoid system. And those are, you know, from the cannabis plant, this THC and CBD, but anandamide is seen really concentrated in meats, especially fatty red meats. And so I think it's really interesting because 
We do. I mean, when my daughter was a toddler, I kept the Peterson's bacon uh, individual packs. And like, if she was, if we had to go into target or we had to do anything high stress <laughs> it was like, have this fatty protein and then you're safe for human consumption or for human, you know, experience. And so I I'm big proponent. I do a lot of the carnivore snacks and that's like my number one for parents that want a kid to chill out. I, I number one, before considering ADHD, you know, interventions and medications, which we know have high susceptibility to driving further mental illness and a developing brain and et cetera, and really just continuously stimulates that HPA access because these are stimulant medications. Let's work with anandamide and let's be strategic on that. And then the other one I would go to is that L-theanine that I referenced, which is seen in concentrated green tea. And an uh, interesting study just came out. They looked at green tea consumption plus green tea extract and then a placebo and they looked at the ORAC scores and glutathione status um, in humans. Usually a lot of these are rat studies or mice studies, and they saw significantly enhanced endogenous production of glutathione. And so the human body was making more antioxidant with the presence of this. And that's kind of my play we discussed offline when we first met about hormesis and the fact that whether the plant is a toxin, whatever we want to call it, if it does something good, I'm in the bank of glutathione good because we've seen in pandemic, the influence with ORAC and um, cytokine storms and respiratory function in individuals that were low. We were even using glutathione nebulized in individuals as an intervention. And um, we know that it's going to be inversely correlated with all cause mortality, liver failure, death, metabolic syndrome, et cetera. In that study, was the extract, did it show more benefits of the glutathione or was it the tea or were they similar? They were similar. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, they tried to do the exact same concentration of, I don't know, you know, milligrams, but they did the same concentration in a food product and then in a pill product so that they were looking at comparable ECGC. Yeah. So I I think the thought of hormesis, so I I'm fully on board with that. I mean, sometimes I drink green tea. I know some people say there's a lot of oxalates. It doesn't bother me. I think the the net is positive for me. So I'm fine drinking it. Um, And I think there's a lot of carnivores that will drink some type of tea or coffee. So I think in the carnivore community, this is my, my logical thought process, but there's a lot of people that obviously have food addiction. And so saying you can only limit carbs to a certain amount is very difficult for them. So they'd rather just go the whole flip side. And like you said, go into this very myopic diet and see if, you know, standard care has failed me. So maybe eating such a nutrient rich carnivore diet will help me get better. And a lot of people do. And the thing is, I mean, we are inundated with so many different foods all around us that I don't know if people long-term want to do carnivore because they want to be able to eat a, a plethora of other foods. Right. So I, I am of the mindset where this is where I'm very different with Dr. Paul Saladino, but I think once you do a elimination diet of carnivore that then you can introduce and the first food you should introduce are possibly like leafy greens and foods that have more antioxidants. I know he's more of the fruit mindset, but I think a lot of people with diabetic issues, that's not the most beneficial to put first. So I'm, we're on totally different pages with that. There's just some people that feel the plants, maybe there's an excess amount of hormetic effect where now it's a negative. So I think, like you said, though, it's very individualized, but I am not um, against like, I have a lot of clients that will drink L-theanine tea at night to go to bed Mm -hmm. or take a supplement. So I'm fully, we have to find ultimately what works for us. And for some people, oxalates is an issue for some people, it's lectin, some people it's gluten, right? Um, Everyone is different. And that's where we just have to find that balance. But ultimately, Mm -hmm. if 
people can add one vegetable that's carnivore, but they're, they can feel better. I'm sure most people will do it. When I think the interesting thing again, is that I don't think that you can have a nourishing diet excluding animal products. I do think you can have a nourishing diet, excluding plant products. It's just the sustainability and the outcome and the demand, but you know, like very clearly we all need to consume the animal things and um, you just can't heal a gut that's damaged. And when I, instead of doing an AIP protocol, which I'm not a big AIP person, uh, just from what I've seen clinically, but I like to run a inflammatory panel that's unique to the individual's cytokines, prostaglandins, the production of the chemical inflammatory compounds. I use a mediator release test or MRT test. And so if I'm dealing with a Crohn's ulcerative colitis, someone that we know just has terrible gut integrity and a lot of epithelial lining damage, I'm going to absolutely put them on a bone broth fast. And then we bring in proteins. And so they're absolutely tightly carnivore. And then we test, and then we look at for their body, what drives the least inflammation and we provide enzymes and we provide also the probiotic support and or challenge with probiotics to make sure that they're not in a dysbiotic state or SIBO, because if that's the case, we have to plow and reset before they'll tolerate. Otherwise they're going to get that fermentation and and that dysbiosis response. So absolutely. I, I think it's important to consider the concept of hormesis as something that's a good thing, but also there's times and seasons if we're dumbing it down to infrared sauna or lifting weights, any hormetic stressor in a season of too high of stress can be too much. And so, you know, like for instance, I, when I'm under high, high, high stress, I'm not sitting down to have a salad. I'm not doing any raw veg other than herbs because it's just too, my system is not wanting that I'm sipping broths. I'm eating dehydrated meat pieces that are easy to assimilate. And in my evening meal, when I'm sitting down with my family, I'll have some roasted cruciferous or whatnot. And that seems to work really well for my body. Everyone's unique, but you know, we all, it's all, I like to think of everything in the human body as a dial versus a light switch. I don't think there's anything, even if we think of cortisol and estrogen, we love to say both are bad, like estrogen dominance. Well, you need estrogen for bone health. You need, you know, (laughs) same as cortisol. You don't want to just demonize cortisol because you need cortisol. There's so many anti-inflammatory effects. That's why we use corticosteroids as main anti-inflammatory drug. So it's just about understanding that finesse of of the dial, the dimmer switch, if you will, I would say. So then thinking of it from a dimmer perspective, what, why do you think some people struggle with anxiety and then some people maybe struggle with depression or just struggle with, they just feel overwhelmed all the time. And I don't know if that would be defined as anxiety. If we can clarify maybe what you define as anxiety and what you think is, I guess, the main culprit. And then I I know we've talked about some of the ways we support it, but. So, yeah. So I think that there is predisposed genetics for sure. So the ones that I really think of are MTHFR and COMT um, as, as well as GAD. So there's, there's what those are is MTHFR is going to be methylation pathway where we think of folate as a huge player. This has been acknowledged in psychiatry for a while. Deplin is a known medication. It's a name brand pharma medication, which is a high dose methylfolate. Um, And so, you know, that's been an intervention for a while. Methylation in its process is basically driving a a wheel. That's kind of how I describe it to people. And it helps with both building and excreting um, compounds. So when methylation is hindered, we'd be more prone towards a buildup of toxicity in that individual, which will drive chronic inflammation, which can make that HPA axis go into that fight or flight survive mode, right? Someone that has hindered methylation is going to have more neurological impact. Um, They're not going to manufacture 
measure as much serotonin as someone who does have optimized methylation. So that's an area or a rock to consider and, and look into. Um, and what's interesting is the next one I mentioned, COMT stands for catecholamine methyl S transferase. And this pathway I see more present in the world of anxiety when it is a SNP. And SNP is just a fancy word for a single nucleotide polymorphism. It just means a genetic irregularity. Um, and so if people say you're positive on these SNPs, that means that your body's not functioning in an optimal place in that said world. So okay. methylation, COMT, because it, it stands for catecholamine. Catecholamine is the word for our fight or flight stress responders made by the adrenals. So we have neurotransmitters made by the adrenals as well. And those are our dopamine, our norepinephrine, and our epinephrine. So kind of bringing that back to the world of psychiatry, the methylation would be more of the Deplin or the SSRIs. If you're thinking kind of on that type of a mind space, the COMT is going to be where we are looking at more of like effects or um, compounds that work more with our epinephrine um, metabolism. And in many individuals have anxiety, they're not going to be able to methylate or basically excrete the buildup of these catecholamines, these fight or flight chemicals. And so they're going to be more prone to have higher presence of adrenaline. If you think of that in the in layman's terms, dopamine too. dopamine, we think of as more of a bliss reward seeking neurotransmitter. Um, again, it's also made by the adrenal glands, but excessive dopamine is one of the biggest drivers of OCD tendency, um, tinnitus ringing in the ears, feeling a constant stimulated or even hyper vigilant, like double checking things. That's kind of in that OCD world or distrust of others, almost paranoia. Um, so that can all be seen with those excessive catecholamines. Um, and then the third one I mentioned was the GAD pathways, um, which is our GABA. And so that's going to influence and be more of like the benzo world of the pharmaceuticals, if you're thinking of these categories, if you will. And so this is where we're thinking of like Xanax, we're thinking of more of the right. sedatives and such. Um, and for individuals that have issues with their GAD metabolism, they are going to run chronically low in GABA. So they're going to be a good candidate for to screen for dysbiosis, to make sure that they have good probiotic status, their microbiome is optimized. And I work with bioidentical GABA. Um, that is a huge tool that is a great supplement for those that are dealing with anxiety. Um, because GABA, I think is an unsung hero in the world of anxiety it is going to be an inhibitory to that excitatory response. And GABA is beautiful because it's not sedative. So way superior to those classifications of medications where we can see sexual dysfunction, we can see flatness, we can see then the depression coming in, the anxieties maybe come down, but now we just feel flat affect or numb. We can also have issues with, of course, motor skills, driving, et cetera. And so what's cool about GABA is a bioidentical GABA, like my GABA calm, I have uh, surgeons on it. I have litigating attorneys on it. I have, because GABA actually enhances academic performance and concentration and focus. So how cool is that, that we can take that steam train valve from that, that pot overboiling and that survival fight or flight discomfort and get into a grounded, mentally acute, still cognitively firing space. I take it every time I have to go on stage. I don't do it for like a podcast like this, but if I have to get on stage and there's bright lights in my face, 
I'm going to be producing more adrenaline. That's the nature of the beast. You know, that's what we, why, why I love doing that stuff. It's a high, right? But I don't want my adrenaline to create a little tremor in my hand when I'm holding a microphone. I don't want to experience any dry mouth. I want to look cool as a cucumber. So I am hands down taking two Gabacom and that helps my whole physiological nervous system feel more grounded. And then it's kind of rock and roll time. I don't get any of that, that jitter. And so th those are kind of the three categories that we think of as far as drivers of anxiety. There are, as I mentioned, you know, nutritional bioidentical and natural compounds that can work with regulating each of those said considered pathways. And what's beautiful is often we'll see a synergy of favorable outcomes versus some of these side effects when we just work with manipulating a receptor site. Right. That's, you know, the big variable there. And, you know, as far as the world of serotonin, I'm very mindful of prevention of excessive serotonin. Again, it's, it's not myopic. It's not like you need me, need more. Um, we'll even see things like diarrhea or more pronounced anxiety with excessive serotonin or man or, or more mania mania. Um, and, uh, we want to be mindful of that's why I don't use any five HTP in my supplement line. I will use it clinically if I'm testing and I'm working on a wean of an SSRI, but that's only done in conjunction with the prescribing practitioner and it's very clinically sound. And so, you know, the supplements that I offer in the naturally nourished line, I ensure don't allow anything that could drive excess or under, they're all very tonifying and um, safe for kind of direct consumer use. Let's say I came to you and my child was suffering with anxiety and you've figured out which of the pathways, or maybe it's just a dial of all three of the pathways, how, and I know it differs per person, but how quickly do you see benefits for the, a child or even me, somebody like me? I mean, I've had moms cry. I mean, Gabacom can be experienced within 10 to 15 minutes and have an influence at that time. Something like the common clear, which has the L-theanine, the nervines, adaptogens, phosphatidylserine takes like a seven to 10 day loading dose to really have an impact. That's more of a foundational tool. Okay. Another one I use a lot is a combination of myo inositol and magnesium okay. bisglycinate. That's a beautiful blend of two compounds. So myo inositol plays a role with intracellular signaling. It in itself is anxiolytic um, and it can support um, sleep quality. Um, it has a huge role in sexual hormone health. So we've seen many studies with like four grams a day of myo-inositol helping women to return to an ovulatory status when they were dealing with hormone imbalance. And then magbisglycinate is that neuromuscular relaxer. That's one that also is a pretty quick actor. Like some people will say after two scoops of relax and regulate, they noticed the following morning that they woke up feeling more balanced in their body. They weren't holding as much tension um, and their nervous system didn't feel as fiery. And by that, I just mean this kind of like hot right. surgy sensation. What are your thoughts about kids that take, you know, like Ritalin and things like that for ADHD and anxiety? I think it's, uh, unfortunately a huge disservice and, and well, first off, I need to say with, before going into what I think, I never am in the business of shaming anyone. Yes. Everyone knows what they know and are provided the opportunity of outlets of what they're provided. And unfortunately in the mainstream medical world, we don't have enough practitioners that are educated on first line defense or intervention in the world of ADHD. And I think that they are, these medications are heavily overly prescribed and there's a 
push from the institutional school system. <laughs> there's an influence. I mean, there's a whole podcast on this, but, but I've been known to say as a pull quote that there's no such thing as a deficiency for methamphetamine. No one has a clinical deficiency for methamphetamine. And so to put someone on a stimulant again, that is constantly firing that HPA access into that excitatory sympathetic nervous system is quite a disservice for a balanced human body and brain. And I think it's one of those shortcuts in mainstream allopathic medicine, because yes, that hypervigilance, as I mentioned, those catecholamines, those can help with alertness, but at what cost? And what does that do in the burnout world? I mean, we've, we've seen in studies that there is significantly higher susceptibility to manic depressive disorder and suicidal ideation in children that take these stimulant drugs. And so I'm a huge proponent against them. I'm a huge proponent of working with, of course, both PT or occupational therapy and trying to advocate for your child to have more outdoor time, maybe right. shifting from a school system if possible. My daughter's on 60 acre campus and they play in the woods, you know, um, doing what you can for their environment to be more in alignment with what's actually healthy for a child as far as their mental, creative and physiological needs. Because I don't believe that those are being served in mainstream education currently. And that's a huge part of this. But then the biochemistry world, of course, also, if that child is not taking a probiotic, if that child is not taking a quality multivitamin with methylated Bs, if they haven't brought in two or three interventions, including the L-theanine, GABA, those are my kind of first line of defense then I really think we're jumping too quick on something that has known clinical side effects. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, when, when I was first trying to figure out what I want to do, I really wanted to help children, but I figured if you can't help the parents, you're not going to ever help the children. And I stumbled upon a book called ADHD Nation, and I can't remember the author, but he talks about the history of Ritalin and all the medications and how even the diagnosis initially was just for males or young boys. And then they switched it to include everybody because they wanted to make more sales. And in that book, it's so scary, but it just shares how much the pharma industry really wanted to push this medication. And initially, I think the, the man that created it was because his wife didn't feel well at home or something and then put her on it. And then it was first, they advertised it to the housewife that wasn't motivated or something Stuff done. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. And then they mode and then they noticed with boys that were, that couldn't sit still in a classroom and maybe they shouldn't be in an eight hour classroom of just sitting still to be wrestling. Working in the field. Right. And then, and then putting it on them. And it was just, if you read that book, it, it kind of shares the history of the actual medication and who they try to figure out who would this medicine best fit. And it yeah. was shared in that way. And it was, it was so unfortunate because then I went into um, all these Facebook groups of moms that are giving this to their children of where we really didn't want to get on it, but we have no option because my child won't, you know, act normal in school. And, and then they would um, have them as the medications wearing off, like having them drinking Mountain Dew and coffee in the evenings. Uh, yeah. And it's just, it was so heartbreaking because a lot of them, the studies showed that a lot of these kids end up becoming drug addicts as they get older. And it's just, yes. yeah, like you said, it's the outcome can be so negative and it's just, but you're right. It's the common thought of this is how you solve this issue. And it's interesting. I, I mean, I can even count the adults that it's like, oh, they went and saw their GP and they complain about brain fog. It's like, right. They're probably not sleeping. They're probably okay. exposed to too much blue light, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they're like, oh, 
I never knew I had adult ADHD and now I'm taking Adderall and I feel great. And I'm like, well, everyone feels great on speed. Like that it's speed, <laughs> like, you know, like, of course, um, but you're going to, you're going to plateau and crash. And that's this, that's the part that unfortunately this lack of informed consent, I think we're, I think it's an exciting time in medicine because there's a revolutionary awareness of individuals taking more sovereignty over their own bodies and not necessarily kind of laying it down on the altar, if you will. I think that we had for so many decades, this, you know, like white coat, tell me what to do. And I just kind of surrender. And we're starting to see with the rise of autoimmune and a lot of the fact that many of those biologic drugs just don't yield the outcomes we're looking for. And we need to get back to diet, nutrition, and lifestyle um, in, in the world of mental health. I think that we're starting to see in the world of immunity without going into that. I think we're starting to see individuals really start to do their own research and um, seek empowerment or the ability to have an influence on imbalance in the body versus that surrender and, and into that, you know, pharmageddon type scenario where we're in polypharmacy. Because I mean, I can't tell you how many clients I've, I've worked with where they might be on a starting point of 17 plus medications. And that's not an exaggeration at all. Right. And it's, just the fact that we work in these um, circuits in mainstream medicine that don't speak to one another. Yes. So the pulmonologist is on one world, the rheumatologist is in another world, the cardiologist is in another world. And even me as a measly dietitian, I'm identifying all these drug interactions. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is not okay. Well, this is why you need those three because this is doing that. And it's, it's pretty insane that there's not this comprehensive general practitioners often not weaving out um, or weeping together the human body. They're, they're referring out and trusting that those sources are connecting and they just aren't, they just aren't connecting. That's not how our medical system is currently functioning. Yeah. Yeah. They don't see the body as one and then trying to get to root cause. I totally agree. How, how does a ketogenic diet then support anxiety? Yeah. Love it. So, uh, and so many mechanisms, right? So, um, ketones cross the blood brain barrier. That's the number one kind of why, and this is why the ketogenic diet got such a rev in actual, even mainstream medicine in the world of epilepsy. And that's the, the one like where everyone I think <laughs> agrees and is like, yes, this is good. This, this is, will manage seizure activity. So if you think of anxiety and you think of seizure activity, central nervous system, autonomic nervous system, it's not that big of a leap. Mm -hmm. um, it's an overexcitatory neurological response, right? And so when ketones cross the blood brain barrier, they actually can upregulate GABAergenic effects. And so we'll actually see more GABA influence, which again is that neuroinhibitory compound. Um, we also know that ketones can interplay with the hypothalamus and can influence more of a parasympathetic. So working on that HPA access, grounding that autonomic nervous system response to not go into that, that sympathetic fight or flight mode and ketones reduce oxidative stress in the brain, which is huge because in that sense, we have less reactive oxygen species, which means less inflammation. And that means that our neurotransmitters and our neuropeptides have a cleaner communication pathway with our central nervous system. So if you have a high status of inflammation, and we see this clinically, if you have elevated CRP, um, you're going to be more likely towards depression and anxiety, as well as other cognitive areas of concern. 
And so, you know, when you bring down that reactive oxygen species and you have a cleaner burning fuel of ketones versus glucose, you take out that fire in the brain, if you will. Um, and that allows better communication of our neurotransmitters. They're not going through jello or sludge. They're, they're really able to fire and wire. And that has a huge influence as well. Do you think there's a certain amount of being in a ketogenic state? Do you think it's just the reduction of carbs to, to feel these benefits of the keto, like the ketones passing the blood brain barrier? Yeah. I mean, you need the, I think you need the presence of ketones for sure. And so also though, to note lowering blood sugar is big as well. We see three to five times more likely of having depression and anxiety in individuals that have an A1C at six or above. So there's also dysglycemia and more reactive oxygen species with the blood sugar dysregulation. And especially, I mean, we see influence of anxiety, I would say more so with hypoglycemia, which follows hyperglycemia right. in many. And um, that's where they'll get that, you know, tunnel vision or the shakiness and those kind of classic hypoglycemic effects can drive what is experienced like a panic attack in many. Um, and what's interesting is we know that stress alone, of course, elevates blood sugar levels. So yes, bringing your carbs down to get out of that mountain valley and um, well, mountain peak and valley dysregulation into more of a speed bump world is generally going to have some grounding effect and feel more cognitively stable and definitely mentally. Um, and that's the first step for children. You know, if a child is just having mood jags or regular, the first thing I do is start to hone in their carbs by saying no naked carbs, removing grains completely. And so no naked carbs would mean that if they're to have an apple, they need to have almond butter associated with that to blunt that glycemic effect. We also want to ensure that we're going to remove processed refined carbs and sugars right away and meet their minimum protein needs. That's kind of like my preliminary, right? And then if they're dealing with a neurological disorder, I would put them into ketosis and that would even be an ADHD diagnosis. That would be an, an appropriate time to put a child into a ketogenic state. Um, but for adults, I think Think that the benefits just outweigh and surpass um, the fact that kids are more metabolically flexible, yeah. I think allows them a, a lot more give in that space. But if they aren't managing their carb consumption, we're dealing with hanger. I mean, and we, none of us feel good that way. <laughs> we're hungry. We're angry. We're irritable. We're bitey. We're, you know, right. and then you wonder why my brother and sister aren't getting along and we're disservicing our children. I think, and I mean, I would argue we're disservicing the human race by robbing the ability to access of ketones. Um, we should all function like a hybrid machine and right. the influence of ketones have such a plethora of benefit in the body. And all the way up till that initial, whether you're doing, I love baby led weaning as a technique, but that first food introduction is when we start to rob because breastfed babies are making ketones and babies are making ketones in utero. Yeah, no, no, no. I agree. My son, I think six months in, he would be sleeping through the night and that's like 12 hours of sleep. They have to be producing ketones in order, oh, yeah. order them, for them to survive. You know, you mentioned a few foods that you may remove from the diet, but are there certain foods that you think are just less than ideal, especially for anxiety. So definitely gluten is a big one. Okay. And, uh, I also tend to remove dairy. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's because both of them have a, so there's caseomorphin and okay, then there's right. gluteomorphin. So there's going to be that interaction directly on mood and the opioid receptor in the brain. And we do see, especially with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, when we're talking about uh, manic bipolar disorder and such, 
these are two really important foods to be hundred percent stringent about, um, because they both also cross those, those compounds cross the blood brain barrier and can impact that opioid receptor function, which can really have a devastating effect on mood balance. Beyond that, I look at removing refined sugars, which we can open that can of worms in a minute. And so, you know, for me, that's refined processed carbohydrates. Um, of course, high fructose corn syrup, um, looking at sugary sweetened foods and starting to get them into a lower carb 60 gram or less um, intake and, and ideally only from whole food force sources. And then I do also remove corn and soy. There's different reasons for both, but but a big reason for both of them that overlaps is because of the glyphosate that we see on both of these crops at high amounts. These are both heavily genetically modified right. plants and they're found also in many processed foods. I mean, you really can't get through the middle aisle of a grocery store without seeing maltodextrin or soy lecithin, et cetera. And so by removing those two ingredients, you're also really heavily cleaning up the diet but it makes no sense for me to try to work on our neurological health while we're exposing ourselves to glyphosate, which is a known neurotoxin. And, and so we've just seen too high of residues in byproducts of these crops. So those are kind of my five, the gluten, dairy, corn, soy, and refined sugar raw dairy or dairy that we ferment? Yeah. So we would challenge that way. So okay. I would, I would remove for three months dairy in all forms, okay. way shapes and, and you know it. Yep. And then, um, I'm a big proponent of raw dairy and I mean the immunoglobulin influence, yeah. we're going to have raw dairy at our market. I'm very excited about it. And so, you know, I would start with that individual's a desire and then also thinking of the least disruptive. So yeah. ghee would be a consideration because that's should be casein and lactose free. And right. so if it's casein free, we're not worried about that caseomorphin. A quality grass-fed uh, protein um, of whey would also likely be casein free. And so those are usually my two entry points. And then the third one would be raw milk because that will still have that casein in right. uh, status. But if we're doing a two, um, you know, it's going to be a different structure. There, then there's then there's a lot of nuances of, you know, what type of cow is it? What type of casein um, protein is it? And then yes, do we use a digestive enzyme to further support um, my digestive enzyme in my line has DPP4 in it. And so that's the compound specifically that actually helps to denature the the gluteomorphin and the caseomorphin. And that's because when I'm using digestive enzymes, that's usually a big part of my, my practice. Okay. Totally makes sense. Let's talk about the sweeteners. So (laughs) when I first went keto, I thought, okay, as long as there's no real sugar, it's good. So I would have myself and my children eat those like keto ice creams. And I saw a post a long time ago where someone shared how Haagen-Dazs is just milk, cream, and sugar and, and eggs. Yeah. And yeah. whereas the other keto brand is a list that's so long yeah. and it just makes you pause and question, are we really making the right choice by eating the keto treat? So just wanted your yeah. thoughts. I know you're not the biggest fan of sweeteners. Yeah. So I am not, um, that's my like one, um, I always say that makes me like the ugly stepchild of the keto (laughs) space, (laughs) especially when I'm speaking on stage at conferences, because so many sponsors are non-caloric sweetener companies. And so I know always like the person running, it's like, Oh, there she goes again. But it's kind of a big passion of mine. Uh, because I really believe very strongly in food as medicine, a part of the constructs of that is that it can't be a chemical shit storm. Right. <laughs> it has to be a whole real food. Um, and so if I'm talking about a whole real food, I'm looking at things like raw unfiltered honey. I'm looking at robust maple that's just been drilled from a tree. You know, I'm looking at dates. Um, I'm looking at 
coconuts and coconut butter, which has some natural sweetness. Um, And so I'm looking at the least things being done to it from harvest and the most close to an identifiable single ingredient. And if we're talking about, for instance, erythritol, which is a very popular sweetener used in many different blends and such, um, erythritol derived from corn. And yes, you can find some non-GMO erythritol, but I always make the joke of like, you would need a breaking bad lab in your garage (laughs) to make erythritol white powder, ubiquitous white powder from a corn cob, right? Like you need a gas mask. You're doing this chromatography, you're centrifuging, you're bleaching. I mean, there's so much chemical input and extraction processing that we are using now an industrialized product very far from a whole real food. So there's that as one piece of the puzzle. And, and, and it's really devoid of, of nourishment. You know, when we're looking at raw and filtered honey, there's chrysin, which is this beautiful antioxidant. And we see a multitude of benefits from that. We see B vitamins, we see um, benefits to microbiome, right? So there, there's, there's actually therapeutic effects from any of those whole food sweeteners that I mentioned. And, and, you know, we could nerd out on each one, like dates, boost your oxytocin, which is why we try to give them to laboring mamas, um, to help with, instead of needing to be induced with Pitocin. Right. right. So I always look for like, is it nourishing? Is it processed refined or is it a whole real food? And then just how that influences the body. If we're talking about non-caloric sweeteners, each of them have their own negative or harmful health effects. So they might be excreted without being metabolized. um, And in that process creates a lot of gut distress. Mm -hmm. So we're dealing with bloating, distension, chronic diarrhea, um, or really a lot of, again, gas and flatulence. We can see electrolyte imbalance, um, which can have a huge role because then all of a sudden we're worried about our, again, magnesium and calcium, which are huge mood stabilizing minerals. We can also see in the world of non-caloric sweeteners, a microbiome sterility impact. And we see that with Reb A and Stevia. Um, And so these tend to a, they're very processed. B, they tend to either deplete nutrient status, uh, reduce our antioxidants, interfere with nutrient absorption or microbiome. And then there's the third argument, which is it doesn't allow you to recalibrate your palate. Um, and I think that that's a huge, I mean, I think they're all three categories, very important, but my argument there is like, you're just replacing like one abusive boyfriend with another kind of thing. Like, okay, Tom didn't work for you. So now you're dating bill. And every time you're in Starbucks or hopefully a local coffee shop, but wherever you are, you're white knuckling that, that donut cake ball, because right. you feel like that's something you should be eating. Cause you've had a keto version of it and your brain and body is still craving said refined, baked, sweetened product. I want you to go to a wedding or a baby shower and feel satiated with your ribeye and your Brussels sprouts and not be tempted by the bread basket and not be tempted by the cake because that level of sweet gives you a palatable distaste that you go, you know, like my, my palate does not desire sweet. Um, I can use these said natural whole food sweeteners in such a low calibrated amount that an individual is still producing ketones because of the metabolic flexibility. And so for me, it's like you use carbs to support the individualized metabolic flexibility so that they still produce ketones. They maintain good blood sugar metabolism. They also have a allowance of joy and pleasure because food is communal and celebratory, but it has to be whole real food based. That's my kind of non-negotiable. Like there's no um, safe amount of Oreos or processed keto, um, ice cream, there is safe amount of 
other, what, what people would say, non-keto foods in a keto space. And I've, I've seen it time and time again, when I've hosted like free parties before KetoCon and whatnot, and have had um, a couple of years back, I had these CBD balls and they had raw and filtered honey in them and lavender CBD in them. And um, I think it was like Ryan Lowry and, and another buddy both had CGMs on and they're like, oh, I had three of these and like no response. I haven't had honey in six years. This is crazy. And I'm like, yeah, it's because like the whole recipe of 32 balls <laughs> has two tablespoons of honey. And so it's like, you know, what are you getting? Uh, you're getting less than a quarter of a teaspoon, you know, per, not even probably less than a 16th. Right, um, right. I do that with my, my, my collagen zucchini muffins. I use one banana in a batch of 12 mm-hmm. collagen zucchini muffins. There's copious amounts of uh, coconut oil and ghee in them. They're very fat dominant. There's collagen, it's almond flour based. And then, yeah, there's one banana. (laughs) And it's like, I've never seen anyone, especially if you're slathering grass-fed butter on that muffin, have a a glycemic impact from that. And if you do, then you have really broken metabolism. And yes, we do have to get really rigid with you, but most people can tolerate that. And again, the palate, I'm not putting enough of these whole food sweeteners that it tastes sweet. It's just balancing out the fat and the acidity and it makes it more palatable, but we're not trying to trigger the palate to feel like safe is sweet. That's a faux pas. And when you do that, you're not going to have sustained outcomes with a ketogenic diet. You have to think that a Marcona almond is sweet. You have to think that macadamia nut has a natural sweetness. And that's then when you're really kind of in alignment with making it a lifestyle, I feel. Yeah. And I think that's where context matters so much. So I've shifted from my kids eating a lot of these sweetened keto products because I don't think it's natural. And I I did an interview not too long ago where um, the person was telling me that if you are eating all these sweetened foods, your brain is not, it's like, it thinks that it's getting something sweet, but it's just messed up. Yes. It's just messed up in this balance and it may cause you to have more cravings for sweet. And I experienced that when I was doing keto my first year, I was eating all the fat bombs and with all this erythritol and stevia, and I never got rid of my sweet tooth. And so eventually I would end up binging on real junk food. Because you're white knuckling it. You're like priming yourself to to say bad, but it's, but, but I'm allowing it. And my body feels like it's safe. And I didn't even mention, um, you know, GLP one, it's your glucagon, like peptidide one, which is a taste receptor in your tongue. And absolutely there is, I mean, we've seen individuals to have blood sugar effects from non-caloric sweeteners because of that psychosomatic influence that, that actual tongue taste receptor signals an influence to our pancreas. Yeah. And I also saw a study where even if your blood glucose doesn't go up and so therefore you think it's safe, you know, there's a lot of those two where you eat it and then you don't see it in the CGM or blood glucose, then they say, okay, so this keto treat is safe, but there's studies where they'll show it may still impact your insulin. You just don't see it necessarily in your glucose. So I think that it's ideal to have, if you're going to try to have something somewhat sweet in your diet, it should be more real whole foods, but that just gets really sticky because we have people in the carnivore space that are eating yeah. tons of honey. And so there's this tricky balance. If that's not what you're saying, it's just in context of if you're going to have a little bit of sweet to just balance the flavors and natural whole food form, it's okay to add a little bit of natural sweetener versus, I mean, sweetened stuff versus having um, artificial sweeteners. Right. Right. For sure. I know that you're, and I don't know if you still are, but I wanted to talk a little bit before we wrap up about Instagram jail. So what kind of got you into it? I'm out. Are you still in? Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, it must be a timeline thing. I I thought, (laughs) because it was the week that Fauci announced his retirement and I was like, (laughs) 
<laughs> it's just a coincidence, I guess. Uh, okay. But yes, I. Uh, it's been a wild ride. It's interesting. I every year I have been focusing on the immune system every season, and I did in 2020, and I started receiving ramifications pretty significantly with censorship. Um, just talking about, and at that time wasn't even super controversial. Okay. However, I did take very early on a stance against masking children, and I still feel very strongly about that. And I think that that was one that was a big flag. And then um, when the experimental injection came out, I also spoke of it that way and wouldn't call it a vaccine because it's misrepresentation of the mechanism of what one is. So uh, I think that there's a lot of um, financial interest, as we know, there's not a thought it is, there's a lot of financial interest. And unfortunately, we're at a space where every single, you know, television program is bought out by big pharma. We, we know that from the TV ads and spaces and that influence the trickle of effect of what we see on the news or what we see on our good morning day shows and such. And the types of medical experts that are brought on uh, right. because they don't want these uh, alternative or maybe accurate um, explanations going on. What I do know and feel is that when we start to use phrases like trust the science, uh, all science dies because science is developed on the constructs of continuing to test the hypothesis. And every single person who believes in medicine and science should be on board with that. Whether we have uh, misaligned perspectives of what works best or of, you know, what outcomes we'd like to see in the hypothesis or how to manipulate or even, um, develop a study to get certain hypothesis outcomes. We all have to feel very sound that it should be challenged and tested. And, um, when we start to see kind of verbiage like that, and we start to suppress thoughts and even research studies. That's often what I was sharing that was getting that CDC pop-up. You know, these were clinical research studies talking about, you know, for instance, glutathione um, during this time and vitamin D. Um, And we were seeing, you know, the New York Times say, we don't know why elderly is dying. And it's like, what about sarcopenia? What about vitamin D? Like, here's these very standard mechanisms. And so It's it's an interesting time. Um, I hope that we're moving into a space where a lot of people actually have opened their eyes. And I think that that is what's being seen as I was referring earlier with that kind of like taking a step away from sovereignty of the white coat and holding that within ourselves, within our own households and our families. And we're starting to question a lot of the medical interventions um, and starting to really see some of those financial ties. Yeah, I think if the people didn't push back enough the mandates, the passport mandates of those injections would have taken place. And it just went away because I think there was enough grassroots movements of people saying, this isn't right. This doesn't seem right. I hope that it continues, that people continue to stay awake. And, you know, I, I see a lot of the infiltration, even in our kids, the things that they watch. And so I can't even have my children watch Disney anymore for various reasons, but yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, it's crazy. They're just going for the children at, I feel like at this point and it is true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, well, thank you for sharing. So how long were you in Instagram jail? Do you know? I think it was March through August. Okay. So I went, I think I fell in in April and it could have been six months though. It could have been February. I'm thinking it was a six month. Okay. Yeah. I think, (laughs) I think I'm at the six months, so we'll see, but it's, 
you know what? It's fine. <laughs> it's been, yeah. it's you been definitely me on this post. I know I, it's, it's kind of like a badge of honor at this point. So that's all right. <laughs> agreed, agreed. So you're, you're coming out with the market. Can you share a little bit? Where is it located? And um, I'm sure. definitely excited to go. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I came up with this idea years ago. I've, well, I've always had kind of a vision of putting together a prepared food line and also doing more of a buyer's club type of market. And nothing accelerated that more than pandemic. Uh, when I was like, you know what, because of the potential of passports or being mandated to acquiesce to shop, um, I was like, no way I'm going to have a private buyer's club. And so we'll get out of the jurisdiction of government. And in that sense, no one can say that you can't have access to your groceries. Um, and so that was kind of a part of the vision. Um, we do have a membership associated with it. So Mondays are membership only days. And those are the days that you can access goods like raw milk and such that we couldn't sell in a grocery store model per se. And then Tuesday through Friday are our standard um, nine to five hours. It is very heavily uh Texas, it's all Texas ranchers and growers as far as what we're offering. And I would say 60% of our offerings are meats and produce. Um, and then maybe some products like sausages, you know, made by our pasture raised pork guy, or we're doing some in-house ground in-house grounds and such. Um, we are very heavily focused on snout to tail. And in November or December, we're going to be doing curated boxes. Um, so like a community supported agriculture model, but working with animal first. And so you would get a variety of different cuts from different sources. So we'll have like your Texas grass fed lamb, and that might be like a shank or um, that could be chops. And then you might have like a rump roast of grass fed pork, pasture raised pork. Um, and then you might have two pounds of ground grass fed beef and one pound of pasture raised pork ground and um, then some marrow bones. And so we're really curating and working because the ranchers obviously get bought out by their grounds and steaks and that's not sustainable business model. There's a whole animal to consume. So we're also going to be making bone broth in-house. Um, I was sharing with you offline today, we're rendering lard from our hog that we purchased. And so we're really kind of hands in on the process in our commercial kitchen. Um, those items will be sold there. And then the actual meats and uh, produce. And then um, we have all sorts of fun offerings. Um, like right now we have a bone broth based pumpkin curried soup with coconut milk. And we have a cauliflower chowder partially like pureed, but has yummy bacon chunks in it. And yeah, it's just, uh, been a fun adventure. And, uh, we're offering of our other products, things that you can't find in the grocery stores. So, um, just small scale producers that can't get up to that, you know, middle level grocer, um, to really try to decentralize food production and vote with our dollar. And, and that's a big piece of, I think what's really important right now with how we're prioritizing freedom and autonomy is having that locked in food security and really specifically directly supporting the growers and ranchers because no farms, no foods. Yes. And, um, you know, this is, this is the best way that I can create and curate that experience and also feed my family <laughs> in a way we're out in hill country. It's located in Wimberley, okay. right between San Marcos and Wimberley. And so currently in that pocket, um, it's by no means a food desert, but as far as natural foods are concerned, most people are having to drive an hour plus to Austin to, you know, go to Whole Foods or Central Market or whatnot. So this really allows a lot more of those kind of boutique artisan goods 
Um, and everything's vetted by me and all in my perspective defined as a product that would be foodicinal or, you know, giving some food as medicine benefit. I love it. And then, um, and do you have an online presence where people can order those boxes or is it just locally to Texas? Yeah, that's just local. Um, okay. you know, we'll have my supplement line there too, as a like pharmacy, and then sure. you can order my supplements online at AllieMillerRD.com. Um, but right now, yeah, we're just getting our, our feet wet. And, um, I think that we, there's such a demand already that we're going to be pretty busy. <laughs> no, I'm excited. And, uh, I know. Yeah, I'm excited too. Yeah. So for people that travel to Hill Country, definitely come check it out. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today. I mean, this was so insightful. I love how you can just marry science and just how to approach things naturally and heal as food as medicine. I mean, you've shared that message for so long and I have so much respect for you. Where can people find you? And I know you have a podcast that shares so much more of your knowledge and wisdom, but yeah, thanks Judy. So everything's under a lot of things are under naturally nourished as like a brand name or Allie Miller RD. So I have a naturally nourished YouTube channel, naturally nourished podcast, and then the naturally nourished supplement line. And, um, on Instagram and Facebook, everything is at Allie Miller RD. And then my main website is AllieMillerRD.com. And on there, we also have like protocols. So anything from seasonal allergies to estrogen dominance, to immune season, uh, to post-surgical recovery, which is also going to be good information for even like a colonoscopy. Right. Uh, we provide protocols on AllieMillerRD.com, which gives supplement lifestyle and diet strategy um, during those kind of targeted timestamps or areas of focus. I love that. I'll have to definitely look at that because a lot of my clients still do gut stuff and then they're all, they hate doing their colonoscopy, but they have to do it. Their GI is requiring it because of some found inflammation. So sure. that's great. That would be great to follow that protocol. Well, thank you so yeah. much for joining me. I'll put all of your, the links and how to find you in the show notes, but thank you again. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Allie Miller. As you can tell, she is a wealth of information. I love just listening to her explain how a lot of HPA access dysregulation happens and what we need to do to support ourselves. I love that even the conversation about sweeteners versus sugar. I know it's a hard pill to swallow, but there's so much truth in what she says. Now we both believe in individualized care. So if you know that a little bit of honey may trigger you like it did for me for so long with eating disorders, you may want to pause on that palate. One thing I loved is that Ali has these beliefs in living a certain way and using food as medicine. And she's moved out of the Austin community and really lived in a place where her child can roam free and be a child. Um, I have so much respect for her for creating a market that can provide a marriage of the smaller farmers and consumers that want foods that are more natural. It's just amazing what she's doing. And it really inspires me to do more at the end of the day, you have to do what makes sense for you, but if you are taking some types of medication, including SSRIs, I was on them at one point, but if it's not really giving you the dialing to heal from your mental illness or mental health or anxiety, you may want to look further into the things that Ali talked about. Okay, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat, take care of your bodies and your stress levels because your body is the only place you have to live. All right, guys, I'll talk to you later. Bye guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. 
If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.